0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your
1: hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter.
0: A very good answer. joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour if you'd like to send them to us our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com if you'd like the proper spelling to that, feel free to join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, com is where you can join us. Click on the Watch Live tab at the purple bar at the top of the screen. You'll be directed to where we are live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the United States every single weekday. If you want to leave your questions to us there as well, on the right side of the screen we'll have a chat box, comment section if you will where you can send us your questions live and we'll be monitoring as the broadcast unfolds. Also at the bottom of the screen, we'll have our email address spelled out for you to make use of at any time, or uh, I guess place would be limited by where your computer's at, but we'll cover technicalities later. Also note as well, if you'd want to join us on social media, our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope, and our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We know that YouTube and Facebook are uh, not as friendly to the Christian message as we would like. And so if we are ever not live streaming there without prior notification, note that our website will still be available for you to make use of, to engage with us, and to receive and answer your questions. Note that the Bible questions that we will answer are the sincere Bible questions. Those are the three rules. They are sincere, they are about the Bible, and they are in the form of a question. We'll also be starting the topic with a question that was sent along to us as well to start things off and give all of you the chance to think of the questions or perhaps uh, phrase them in the form of a question given your experience either with non-believers or your own time in the Word of God. But before we do anything as far as stating what we think on our hearts and minds we want to make sure that the spirit equips us to do that correctly so why don't we start with a word of prayer and then we'll get right into it Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word. We know that this is a privilege, not a right, that we relate to you on the basis of mercy and nothing else. So we want to make sure that your power is known, your name is honored, and that your word is accurately represented here. Equip Peter and I with the fulfilling of your spirit to not only edify, exhort, and comfort your people, but to honor your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting us off, uh, we were sent along a question that covered a few topics, but one in particular that I think is worth addressing regarding our apologetics day. Uh, the concern a lot of people have about what it means to be or to not be a Christian, they will sometimes associate, and this is our already outright into Coltville, if you don't attend our church, then you're not saved. We can obviously throw that out. But if on the other hand, someone says you have to attend a church
1: to be saved,
0: what would be our response to that?
1: Yeah, no, it was a very interesting question. And as Sean said, a, a very relevant one for our apologetics day, where we talk about not only our ability to defend the faith, but to defend certain aspects of the faith. And I think that in our culture, as you said, Sean, a lot of people associate the rigor of organized religion with cultish behavior. So they would say like, oh, well, you know, I'm I'm for Christianity, I'm for God, but organized religion, attending a fellowship, attending a church, I'm just not really too into that. You know, I just...
0: Yeah, and we can have fun with the wordplay and say, well, would you prefer disorganized religion? You right. don't know what we're doing, so feel free to join yeah. us. But the idea behind it is I don't want this like structured complex because I've seen it corrupted or misused right. by evil people. In the name of God, I'd rather... I trust myself to not do weird things with the finances that are given to me because there are none. I trust myself not to teach myself false teachings because I wouldn't think it if it was false, Mm -hmm. and on it goes. But of course, the scriptures have a different thing to say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as we know throughout the New Testament, we are given as believers a series of good works that we are supposed to be performing. Like, for instance, we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. We're supposed to be honest. We're supposed to be kind, generous, gentle. We're supposed to give to those who have none, right? True religion is this, taking care of widows and orphans. There's a slew of good deeds mentioned throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament that we as Christians are supposed to do. Which are fitting for saints. Exactly. Uh, now the question always gets asked are, is this necessary to become a saint, or is this behavior fitting for the saints? So in other words, do I do this in order to become saved, or is this behavior that I do now that I am saved? And the Bible, in various ways, gives us this answer very, very clearly. There's many passages I could go to. But my favorite is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, talking about the sacrifice of Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So our methodology of becoming perfected forever is distinct from our methodology of being sanctified. Sanctify is just kind of a high highfalutin word for being made holy or more like God, as we would call it, godly character, godly behavior. Yeah, cleans- and set aside
0: for a new purpose. It's the Christian life in action. I'm not like Jesus today, but more than I was yesterday.
1: Exactly. So uh, the author of Hebrews is telling us that the one offering, right, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient. This is very key. It's sufficient alone in and of itself to make you perfected forever. You can't get better than that. There is no score higher than that. If you are perfected forever, those are two words when joined together, means they are as good as you could possibly get. Not uh, in relevance to your status before God, you are perfect, you can't get better than that. And how long that perfection is going to last, it's eternal, and you can't get longer than that. So that is using two extreme words put together to show you this is the highest possible righteousness you could ever achieve, and it's through what? This one offering. You cannot add to it. However, Those who are already perfected forever, positionally before God, right? That's what the context of this passage is all about. Positionally before God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are perfected forever. But now that we are perfected forever, we are now being sanctified. Our character is being transitioned as a result of our position being transformed through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Very, very key to understand. So we have all these good works. We have things like baptism. We have things like attendance of church. We have things like confession of sins. Uh, Again, charity to the poor, loving our our enemies, including uh, our—I'm sorry, our neighbors, even including our enemies, right? All these things are good commandments, and they're things that we ought to do, But they're not things that could ever transport us from our sinful, fallen state before God into a saved and righteous position before God. Only our faith in Jesus's sacrifice can do that for us. And again, there's a slew of different uh, verses that I can give you guys to to demonstrate this. And me and Sean talk about this very often. But for the sake of today, we're going to stop there and we're going to move into is attendance of a church, as attendance of a local body of believers, is it a good work? And if so, why? Well, I think that the best book to go, I mean, I started by quoting Hebrews. We're going to stay in Hebrews. It's really the best book that we can go to to understand this point because it was literally written to address this. So what was happening during the time that this book was written is that there was various members of the early church that were departing the faith. And <clears throat> their primary for departing—the uh, reason for departing the faith was persecution. So... Uh, Up until that point, there was levels of persecution that were being leveled at the church. It started out kind of like how the law enforcement does it. You know, you're not just trying to get everyone who uses drugs. You're trying to just really aim and focus on the drug dealers. Uh, That's how, for lack of a better metaphor, that's how the early uh, pharisaical sect was aiming their ire at the early church. They weren't just trying to persecute every Christian. They were going after the leadership. But over time, it was transitioning and it was becoming aimed at every christian right everyone who had faith in jesus christ was becoming a target of the persecution of the jews and they weren't persecuting them because they were
0: organizing some <clears throat> guerrilla campaign or anything in the ancient world your religious loyalties were equated or equated rather with your adherence to a particular set of laws if you honored the gods of a nation that meant that you honored the morals that they stood by right. so for a christian to adhere to not just the jewish gods, but you look at the Jews and they want nothing to do with this Christ figure. Hmm. They claim they're the Messiah. So they're not a part of their religious group, which is protected until around the end of the or the beginning of the second century. Yeah. And we don't see them worshiping the pagan gods. They refuse to even burn incense to Caesar. So these are lawless people. Right. They would accuse them not just of crimes, but they would call them criminals because they disassociated from the standard for their laws. So if, and again, poor example, but say in the United States, someone were to come here illegally, I know it's a very ironic uh, comparison, but let's pretend the laws is enforced. Uh, someone were to only adhere to the laws of their previous nation. That would obviously break certain laws here, things like child molestation, things like child marriage, uh, honor killings and so forth those are legal in other areas of the world but not legal here of course we have compromised legal authorities that would allow this to take place but here's the point to be a christian resulted in persecution because of that fact you did not honor the gods of the nation therefore it was assumed that you were a lawbreaker so don't let people tie you into well what were they doing as if that's relevant to the conversation.
1: Uh, Yeah, so there was extreme persecution happening, and in response to it, a lot of Christians were like, we're going to go underground. Now, some Christians meant underground the way that a lot of people today mean underground, like the underground church in, say, China or Iran or Saudi Arabia or something like that. What they mean is that they're still meeting and gathering together, and they're still professing Christ, but they're doing it in a way where they're not broadcasting it uh, to everyone around them because they know to do that would mean death. Yeah. So where you met was the uh, Agora. It was where meetings and religious ceremonies happened. But
0: the Christians would instead do private places. Exactly. And that was not unheard of because you didn't have the protection of the soldiers or the city walls. It was weird.
1: That's right. And so they would go to local believers' uh, houses and things like that and have service there. Uh, but when I say they were going underground, I mean that for all intents and purposes, they had cashed in their faith. They were not gathering together with other believers. They were not professing Jesus as their Lord. They went back to being Jews in all, for all intents and purposes. But inside, they were like, well, internally, though, I believe that Jesus is the Lord. Internally, I believe he died for my sins. And so I'm going to keep going to the temple. I'm going to keep doing my sacrifices. I'm going to keep celebrating the Jewish festivals because what's wrong with that? You know, Jesus is obviously the Jewish Messiah, so why can't I do these things anymore? And the author of Hebrews goes against that pretty hard. Now, interestingly— A good portion of this book is dedicated to the theological underpinnings of why Christians need to avoid this. But there's also a secondary kind of thread that runs throughout the book of the importance of church gathering. Now, listen to this. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Earlier on in Hebrews 3, verse 13, he says, Let us exhort one another daily, so long as it's called today, lest we become hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, there's something in our hearts. There's something in the way that God designed us that basically is molded, shaped, uh, even uh, pursued by the type of fellowship that we have. So in other words, the kind of people that you associate with on a regular basis actually has a marked impact on the things that you believe, the things that you think, and the things that you want to do. There's only a small percentage of the population that isn't so easily swayed by the opinions and the ideals of those around them. And those people tend to be more leaders. But the majority of people are not leaders. They're not designed to be leaders. They don't have the propensity to become leaders. They are more followers. And that's okay, right? In the book of First Corinthians, Paul talks about the distinctions within the body of Christ. And he says that there is no type of honor that is bestowed that is greater upon someone who would lead in the body of Christ versus someone who would, say, just be a service, right? And he uses phrases like an eye versus a hand or something like that. So it's very important to understand that I'm not saying that people are lesser if they're more of a follower than a leader, but I am saying that those are the particular gifts that they're given. Because of that, though, they are much more influenced by the company that they keep. The people that surround them have a very large impact on what they think, what they believe, and what they think is right or decent, now, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, and notice his language, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. The danger that he sees in this passage of people losing hope, losing faith, actually has very little to do with theological argumentation. In other words, he doesn't really see in this passage that the problem is that there are some really great Jewish arguments out there. There are some awesome Jewish evangelists, and he's worried. He's like, wow, these guys got some great arguments to get people out of the faith. That's not the fear of the author of Hebrews. Now, we do have apologetic books within the New Testament. The book of Colossians is a good example. Uh, 1 John is a good example, where that was the fear, that there were some really good Gnostic evangelists, if you want to call them that, that were convincing people out of the faith. The author of Hebrews is not aimed at any particular heresy. What he is aimed at is the propensity of the believer to drift away from the faith, not based around some argumentation, but simply based around the company that they kept. So the more that they drifted back into their Jewish roots, the more they drifted away from the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, we don't like to believe that that's true of ourselves. We're like, no, you know, like I I believe the truth because it's true. And that would be great if that was 100% true of us, but it's just not. God designed us for relationships and community. One of the greatest things that we need within our lives is to feel connected Those who don't feel connected, those who don't feel like they're a part of any type of community or genuinely feel as if there are those out there that love them and accept them, there are much higher rates of suicide and depression. These are things that people just need. We know the psychological effects of isolating people. In fact… When you're sent to prison, one of the worst things that you could do to somebody is put them in isolation, right? You would think that like, no, the worst thing you do in prison is put them around fellow inmates. That's just not true. They reserve isolation as one of the highest punishments for people who are already in a part where they're being punished, right? They're already being penalized. And they're like, yeah, but we reserve this right to really penalize you, to send you into isolation. Isolation has severe psychological impacts on people. And again, We're living in a time where I just don't feel like I need to prove that at all because (laughs) there has been a lot of social isolation that has happened through the pandemic and various shutdowns. And it has had a verifiable and obvious impact on people's psychological state. Uh, If you want a full report on this, Johns Hopkins actually released a report on it last year, and it's in detail, and it talks about suicide ideation, it talks about depression, it talks about anxiety, substance abuse all the things that were affected specifically by isolating people in their homes and by preventing them from having social interaction without the use of, say, a mask or things like that. Now, some people would say, well, you know, we have the internet. We have this ability to interact with one another. And this is an argumentation that some Christians might use for not going to in-person church. Be like, well, I'm, I'm watching church online. I am through the online community becoming connected with the church. So isn't that the same thing? And the answer is No. Now, does the Bible specifically address it? No, because it was written 2000 years before social media. You wouldn't expect the Bible to specifically address it. But psychologically, we know that this is the case. You are far more influenced by the people that you spend time with in person than you are by those that you spend time with over social media. Social media is a great supplement to relationships, but it is not a replacement. We know that. We know that definitively because, again, if it was a sufficient enough uh, replacement, you would not see these types of effect happen from people being isolated in their homes because people have never been more active on social media than before these last couple years. I mean, the uh, stock prices of Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube have gone through the roof Over the time of the pandemic. So, we know for a fact that people are online more than ever, and yet people feel more isolated than they ever have. And this is a result of the fact that, again, it is not enough to do it just online. You need to be in person, you need to be able to talk to people, interact with them, hear what they have to say, listen to them. Church is a place for you to do that with godly relationships. And it's not enough for you, again, to just attend for one hour on Sunday. You have to be in the body. You have to be connected with the people that are there. You have to be invested in their lives, and you have to allow the people there to invest within your life, especially the leadership. Now, I I could give an even more snarky answer when someone says, like, well, is church really that important? Find me a book of the Bible that was not addressed to an assembly of believers, it doesn't exist, right? Every yeah, even book even Philemon is addressed <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to those in your house. That's right. <laughs> even
0: the books to. 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus are addressing their treatings of their congregation.
1: Absolutely. So you don't even have God addressing people unless he's talking to an assembling of believers. Jesus himself created the ecclesia, right? Which literally means gathering, by the way. right? That's literally what it means. The ecclesia building, is the church.
0: It's a group of like-minded people. That's what church means.
1: That's exactly correct. And, and you go into the Old Testament, what was, what was one of the main things that God tried to do? Establish a nation, right? God is all about collective, as if you want to put it that way, organized religion. That is what God is all over. If you could find for me somewhere in the scriptures that would support individualistic pursuit of God— I would be all ears, right? (laughs) At the expense of social interaction. Exactly. Now, there are times where we just can't do that, right? There are instances in the Old Testament, for instance, where Elijah is separated from other believers or Jeremiah. But that's never presented as the ideal. In fact, they suffer as a result of that isolation. And, in fact, in my life, there was a time where I literally couldn't. Why? Because I was in Afghanistan. Not a lot of churches in Afghanistan. I don't know if you knew that. And also, I was just surrounded by a lot of people who didn't really take their faith in God. God seriously, Most people didn't have faith in God that I was serving with, but those who did really weren't taking their faith seriously. So I had no type of outlet for godly edification with fellow believers. And it was a bummer. It was a huge setback within my Christian faith. God met me and was gracious towards me because I literally couldn't. But I was in a situation where it did affect my Christian growth. My Christian bro- growth has never been more pronounced than when surrounded by other believers, by other Christians who can encourage me, hold me accountable, and maneuver me closer to God. We need to be, as he puts it, around people who stir us up towards love and good works. Do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Now, there are other things I could say about the benefits of church. Uh, The utilization of your spiritual gifts, by the way, is mentioned as being key to being a member of the church. Read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, where the Apostle Paul talks about that. How do you even know what spiritual gifts you have unless you're a part of a body of believers where you're being encouraged in the utilization of your spiritual gifts for the edification of the body? He uses that phrase a lot in 1 Corinthians 12-14. through If all Um, were an
0: eye, then where would be the smelling? And if all were a nose, where would be the seeing?
1: Exactly. Putting yourself underneath the godly governance of those who love the Lord and are seeking to honor Him in their behavior. Submission is very key within the New Testament. Testament, uh, read the book of Titus, read the book of Galatians, and you'll see the emphasis that the, the apostle Paul puts upon attending church as a place to have godly governance that you submit to and learn that type of fealty. You learn that type of humility in putting yourself underneath the control of somebody else. It's not very easy. Now, does that mean that we're supposed to go to church and just do whatever someone else says? No, I think that comes from people's misunderstanding of the word submission. Our ultimate example of submission is who? Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is the perfect example of submission, and so we see him do it in the perfect way. There are some instances in which Jesus' submission was very kind, very generous. Uh, for instance, he encouraged his disciples to listen to the head priest, because the head priest was in the seat of Moses, as he put it. There are times where he pays the temple tax. There are times where he defers to his parents, even though he thinks he ought to be doing something else, like when he was 12 and hanging out in the temple, right? There are times where you see Jesus be very humble in the way that he submits. But then there are times where you see him be a little fiery. Uh, There are times where he goes and just goes right up to the face of the authority figures in his world and says, No, And uh, in some much less nice ways and much more eloquent ways, Jesus was very, very bold and brash in the way he confronted the authorities within his sphere that he felt were abusing their power and going against what God had commanded him to do. So submission doesn't mean doing everything that someone says that is above you, but it means allowing them to exercise the authority that God has given them through the source that God has given them for your edification and benefit, right? So me and Sean, we have authority, but that authority is not something that we've created. It's not through our power that in our might, that we have accumulated people to us and now we can do whatever we want. We exercise authority by sitting in seats that God himself has established. So that means that we have an office that has very strict bounds. There are things that we can do and there are things that we can't do. If we go outside of those bounds, people should ignore us and repent Refuse to do what we're asking. Hey, rebuke us. We'll take it. Exactly. We need it if we're in that position. <laughs> yeah, even rebuke us, as you said. Also, all the authority that we have is delineated to us through the Scripture, meaning I can't come up with commands. I can only hold people to the existing commands of the Scriptures, right? So I can't say, well, I think that you should do this and therefore do it. And we see examples in even the New Testament where Paul says that. He's like, hey, it's not, it's not really... God who said this, but I'm saying this, and I I think I have some authority, right? So he, he is able to impress upon people instructions as he sees fit. But again, he recognizes the differences. There are distinctions in which Paul says something based on his discernment, as a leader, and things that he says that are definitive from the scripture and the writings of, God, of Christ. So very big differences that you see uh, amongst those. But those are just a couple of the reasons, a couple of the uh, situations that we need to be a part of a local body of believers. You need to attend, you need to submit. Those of you guys who want to understand this in greater detail, I really, really strongly encourage you to read a book called uh, Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's short. You could probably read the entire thing in two hours, right? If you apply two hours to this book, you could get through the whole thing. Very, very short, incredibly eloquent, and it's very convicting when he talks about the importance of the church and why we need it. And by the way, this is a guy who was writing at a time where to go to the church, right, to go to, to the gathering together of believers was a crime, and it could be penalized by death. So these are people who are, you know, in America, in the Western communities, people can't be bothered to go to church because they're just like, ah, it's too far. I don't really want to do it. I'll just watch online. People in Bonhoeffer's day were risking their lives to go to church, right? So it's, it's convicting to hear him talk about that where he's like, yeah, we, go out, we could be killed for doing this, but we're going to do it, and this is why, right? And he talks about it. And it's like once you read that, it's like what excuse do you have? to not be a part of a, a body of Christ that this guy didn't have you know he he has to walk there he's in fear of his life but he's doing it because he really believed that it was important to be a part of a body of believers important enough to risk his life important enough to risk his life. So I encourage you to read that book. It would definitely, if you're, if you're on the fence about this, I guarantee you it will change your mind about it. He does a very good job of convincing anything you'd like to, to tack on the end of that or elaborate on. No, uh, I think we can get out to the questions cause they're
0: stacking up and kind of got me scared. Yeah. Uh, here's a question from Yari. A uh, few questions. We'll clarify them point by point where appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. The statement, King's Kid, or the title, especially in the context of a Pentecostal Word of Faith background. Uh, There's a few passages that he cites in support of this, which unfortunately don't mention the word king or kid, but we'll deal with that in a moment. Is the statement, you are a king's kid, a false one biblically? Now, unfortunately, the answer is no. That is a biblical statement, and we would first need to clarify where we get that idea. You don't see the term or the phrase, you are a king's kid in scripture, but we conclude that we are sons of God in a relational sense because of, among other passages, Romans chapter 8, and let's start in verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, it's stopping right there. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? What is his purpose, his role in the Christian heart and life? To lead us to salvation, to reveal all truth, to develop spiritual growth. See John 14 and 16 for this. But he will lead you into all truth. That relationship is intact. You can also look at 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3 and noting the Spirit's the one who leads us to salvation in the first place. So note that point. But then he goes on to say, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, this is in reference to Paul's points leading up to this chapter, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And then goes on to note the spirit's personal relationship with us is one he's emotionally invested in. But here's the point. The statement, you are a king's kid, isn't spoken in the context of you are saved. You are being led into all truth. You belong to God in a permanent sense. The spirit of adoption that Paul, speaking to a Roman audience, knew was a deliberate, decisive, and permanent one that puts you to the head of the family. Now, all of that is thrown aside in favor of what? You are entitled to spiritual blessings because what father is going to refuse his son? And then they'll quote other passages out of context where it notes, again, similar point, will a father... If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, if a son asks his father for a piece of bread, will he give him a stone? If he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? How much more, this is the part that's left out, will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Notice it doesn't say whatever you want, whatever clothes, whatever financial status, whatever health status you want. The Spirit is God's priority. The status by which we are called sons of God is our relationship with him through his spirit. So if that's then the one and only definitive biblical term that we would associate terms like king's kid, things like belonging to God in that relational sense, and applying our fathership and sonship, with God, that way we relate to Him is on that basis, then for me to play fast and loose with that, and I say that very harshly, You need to be very cautious with how people are manipulating you in this regard. Now, the passage that was being used to bring up the king's kid, and this is why I needed a lot of clarification, was in Psalm 17 and verse 8, where it says, Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me under the shadow of your wings. Now, obviously, those listening know I don't hear the word king's kid mentioned once in that verse. Well, you're right on top of it because the word king or kid isn't mentioned once in that entire chapter this psalm is spoken by king david in a call for justice and protection in verse one hear a just cause O lord attend to my cry give ear to my prayer which is not from deceitful lips so this is where he starts asking for money and health right let my vindication come from your presence let your eyes look on the things that are upright you have tested my heart you have visited me in the night you have tried me and found nothing i have proposed that my mouth shall not transgress concerning the finances no the works of men by the word of your lips i have kept away from the paths of the destroyer uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip so first five verses do we have anything in regard to anything apart from david's moral standing with god anything monetary anything physical no Verse 6, I have called on you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O you who save those who trust in you. Save like as in bail out? No, what's he asking for? You save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. The immediate sentence before verse 8 is identifying David as under threat from, for his life, literally. And we can look to many opportunities where this would have come up in his life. But then it says in verse 8, Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me under the shadow of your wings, from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. So in this apple of your eye statement, we have sandwiched in between it David literally calling for help calling for physical protection, for me to then jump over to Romans chapter 8 and throw out Matthew chapter 6 in repeating this over and over somebody, and then jump again over to another portion of the Gospels where I rip out the intention of the Father to give me the Spirit and say, give me whatever I want. This is a relationship with God based on covetousness. And, Peter, you can attest to this. We've seen the damage that the prosperity gospel can do to someone's relationship with God as opposed to this approach and thinking, well, I'm a king's kid, therefore give me. Uh, that, that, that's uh, prayer according to Veruca's salt. What would it be according to Jesus Christ?
1: Uh, yeah, and <clears throat> before I, I get to Jesus' prayer, which is awesome, uh, anyone who says that they're a king's kid, read, read the book of 1 Kings. Just Just read it. And tell me what happens to kings' kids, literal kings' kids, when they get everything they want from their dads. Do they turn out good or do they turn out not so good? And also tell me which kids, uh, I'm sorry, which fathers are praised the most within the book of kings? Is it the ones who dote upon their children and do whatever they want for them? Or is it the ones who withhold their hand from their children and discipline them and raise them in godliness? So we have to remember and be weary if we say God is our father and he is a king. Yes, but he's a good father. And good fathers don't spoil their kids. So absolutely. My daughter, I love her. I would give her the world. Anything that she asked of me, if, it, if I knew it would benefit her, I would do whatever it took to get it for her. Absolutely. And she could ask me for whatever she wants. But you know what? I'm gonna say no to a lot of the things that she asks from me. Right. So uh this is something that she is learning now and it's no fun. She's in the terrible Tuesdays. And and so whenever we go somewhere, there are a billion things that she asks us for. And me and Emma, me and my wife, we have to say no quite a bit. It's not because we hate her. It's not because we're like, well, you know, we just can't afford these things. The stuff that she's asking for is really small. It's because we don't want to spoil her a lot of times. It's because we don't want her to just feel as though whatever I ask for, my dad's going to give me. So anyone who says, I'm a king's kid and therefore God will give me whatever I ask for, Obviously, as a view of parenting, that's incredibly terrible, twisted, and polluted. Uh, Parenting means that you do what's best for your children, not what they think is best for themselves. So the writing of the New Testament and the Old Testament of calling us sons of God, children of God, is actually very intentional. If you notice, the language utilized is not that of adult children before God but of little children, right? In Psalm 132, I believe it is, David says, let me be like a nursing babe, right? So he's like, I I recognize my state before Lord. I know my foolishness. I know that I don't always know what's best for me. So I'm going to leave it in your hands. This is why our model for prayer from Jesus is nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Hey, Make your requests known to God. God cares about you, First Peter chapter 5, verse 7. And just like I want my daughter to ask me for whatever is on her heart. I don't want to tell her no. You know, Don't ask me these things because I don't care. I do care. But I reserve the right as her dad to determine whether or not whatever she's asking for will actually benefit her. And if the answer is no, then I will not give it to her, period. No matter how much she cries, no matter how much she whines, no matter how much she begs, I am not going to give it to her because I don't want to spoil her. The same thing is true with God. There are oftentimes where we pray for things for God, and they seem very much like they would be good for us, but we trust that God knows better than we do. So we reserve God reserves the right to say no, to fulfill his great and perfect purpose for your life. And sometimes that includes you going through suffering. Sometimes that includes God saying no to a healing. And sometimes God that means God allowing death either your death or the death of someone that you deeply love. For Jesus, for his father to say no, when he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, it meant his death. That's yeah, what take it meant. this cup from me. Right? Yeah. Take this cup from me. That's literally what he was asking for. I don't want to die. And his father said no. And praise God, the father said no. To benefit Jesus would mean not only to destroy jesus entire purpose for coming which would be really bad for him but it would be really really bad for us too right uh god would be okay he's got himself but we would not be okay because we wouldn't have god and we would be separated from him forever so yeah we are king's kids you're absolutely right we are children of the living god but he's a good father
0: Right, he's going to do what's best for you, and we need to define that as Scripture states. Now, here's a great question it's from Robert. Uh, he's reading Proverbs 23 verses 6 through 7. Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Uh, the question is, obviously, I love that proverb, by the way. Yeah, so the good. statement, uh, "As a man thinks in his heart, so is he." Uh, obviously, there's a lot of people who clue in on that and mm-hmm. say, "I think, therefore, I." Am or your uh, uh, inflection reflects uh, your uh, objection, that sort of deal. But um, he agrees that we shouldn't think evil in our hearts, but he believes this verse is referring to a miser, someone who has an evil intent. Uh, That's what a miser means, someone with uh, ulterior motives. But when we're talking about, uh, say, for example, does this passage teach that? We obviously should be clear in saying that you're absolutely right, Robert. That passage does say those words but it's not teaching that statement if you want other examples you can and that would reflect your uh, perception of yourself as hazardous if it's so focused inward that you don't see anyone else's perspectives that would of course be for a lot clearer instructions on this matter Proverbs 3 verses 7 through 8 but if we're talking about this specific passage you're right on and being careful and saying yeah that's a good statement But that's not the point of the proverb. We want to make sure that's in proper context. We can go to the New Testament where it talks about these things. 1 Corinthians 15 notes, bad company corrupts good morals. Mm -hmm. But if we were to say, oh, so uh, what was the context of that passage? It's not relevant. I like that statement. No, it's building on the resurrection and people who would deny that. You need to be careful about the spiritual influences you let into your life. If I go back to Proverbs 3 and say, okay, a man uh, thinks... Uh, or a man's uh, way seems right to himself the end of that way is death Right. well that's uh, scary but does every single thought that a man thinks about himself lead to death no it's referencing those apart from God we need to make sure that each passage is taken when it's said how it's said and in what style it's said you're right to say okay immediate context here. What is the passage? Well, you don't have to finish the sentence. It's regarding a miser, someone with ulterior motives. And it builds on that parable, that illustration. So then building on that proverb, what would be good ways to apply it? And there is a difference.
1: Yeah, like I said, I absolutely love this proverb. So what the immediate context of the proverb is saying is it's saying that someone's actions may not denote their actual heart. That's the whole point. So in the context, what's happening is the miser is you're, you know, and you could picture this in your, in your head. You're at somebody's house and you're hanging out with them, and the whole time they're like, oh, yeah, go into my fridge, eat some food. Like, it's okay. But in their heart, they're just like, Ah, you mooch, you know, you're coming over to my house, you're eating my food. And they're just, it's just building resentment. It's building a bill within their heart. And we've all known people like this before. And if you don't know anyone like this, then that's because you are the person who is like this. This is somebody who offers generous favors to others, but they're offering these generous favors. And the whole time they're tallying up what you owe them as a result, so in other words it's faux it's fake generosity masquerading i mean i 'm sorry it's true miserliness masquerading as generosity right so we're we're actually the Scrooge we 're actually the person who is trying to just get ours, we hate being people taking things from us we 're not generous at all, but we're offering things disingenuously so that's that's the immediate context of the proverb and he's warning us of that right he's warning us, do not take money or things from people who actually have this miserly heart and we see the apostle paul apply this right so there are instances where paul will just flat out tell people don't give me money the corinthian church is the prime number one example of this paul explicitly refused money from the corinthian church they tried to give him money and he said no way absolutely not i'm not going to take your money And he ended up being absolutely right because in second Corinthians, they were so twisted up that they're like, Oh, he didn't receive money from us because he's actually a false prophet. And he, you know, you get what you pay for. And Paul's like, wait, what? Like if I would, if I would have taken money from you, you would have said I was a false prophet for taking money, but now I'm not taking money from you. And you're saying I'm a false prophet because I'm not taking money from you. Do you see the problem here? Right? So Paul explicitly said no because of their heart, but from the Philippian church, He explicitly says yes in Philippians chapter 4. He talks about receiving their gift. So there's a great bit of wisdom just in that context that we need to understand. But the other way that we could apply it outward of that proverb, and the reason why I said I love it so much, is what it's saying is, again, that people's actions don't necessarily denote their true heart. Right. So just because someone, you know, a politician is promising someone something or you're with someone that you love just because they're saying something to you, just because they're demonstrating something to you doesn't actually tell you much about their heart. You have to look a little bit more nuanced than just what they're saying. And we have to be careful with people. This also applies to self. Be careful with yourself. Are you a person of integrity? Do you say what you mean? right? Because what he's saying is, as you are in your heart, that's how you truly are. Not what you say. So we can come to church and we can talk a good game about how God is the most important person in our lives, but is he really? You know, your heart will really tell the tale. And what we want to become more and more as Christians is are people who are, again, that we have integrity, that our words do line up perfectly with our heart. What we say and what we do matches 100% what is within our heart. We want to be People who are whole, people who are united, that don't have this cognitive dissonance or this phony facade of righteousness. We want to be people who are through and through the right kind of people. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. So let us know if that helps you out.
0: Thank you, Robert, for the good question. Here's a fun one on our website. The username's Light Dragon. I like that. Um, he wants to know why doesn't the Bible mention social media? Reference to the earlier statement. Uh, shouldn't God have mentioned past, present, and future? Predicted the future since God is outside of time. Shouldn't the Bible include? Everything. Thank you. Well, thank you, Light Dragon. Um, the question is, should the Bible include everything? Well, then it would be a lot thicker than this. The good news is the Bible defines its own purpose in several places, but here's the most straightforward. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So it came from a source outside of time. We're both on the same track here. And it's profitable for doctrine. Now, what's doctrine? Doctrine is teaching. Yeah. So what we believe. Right. Right. Reproof. What's that? Proof is correction. Oh, so if we're off the track to know how to get back on it for correction, obviously building that point. Yeah. Yeah. Instruction in righteousness. So how to live a right relationship with God. Right. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Don't see a lot of technology. Don't see a lot of cooking instructions. Don't see a lot of internet, I guess, availability in the Bible. And that's because this collection of books is not intended to tell us everything about everyone. There are
1: future predictions. Yes.
0: But just just what's relevant. (laughs) And and what is relevant, what is the focus of the Bible. Right. Is to bring us into a relationship with God. And that was primarily done firstly through the nation of Israel, which is why we're told so much, not everything, But so much about their history, Mm -hmm. how we're told about when they got things wrong more so than others and the few times and drawing special attention to how they got things right. The New Testament does that for us very well. But if we note and just point out examples, say for instance the kings of Israel or the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, does it mention everyone who is biologically associated with him from the time of Abraham to Joseph? No. But it mentions 14 generations from, and it specifies this, the time of Abraham to the captivity, from the captivity to the uh, exile and return and so forth but it categorizes these things why to clarify the point which was what david abraham that's what matters here so if on the other hand we were to say well if the bible was from god then it'd tell me everything i would want to know from it well are your priorities in line with its authors because peter you wrote Two books now. You're working on a third. And if I were to ask you, in your book, Fellowship of Suffering, why don't you talk about the times where I stubbed my pinky toe? That's very relevant to me. I feel it every single time it happens. You
1: really cared.
0: <laughs> if you were really from this authoritative authorship source, why wouldn't you, at least in regards to suffering, know enough to mention my pinky toe? Nice. Well, obviously, it's uh, making a humorous illustration, you obviously aren't God, but it's making the point that he, from his experiences in suffering, wanted to draw special attention that would apply outward. Now, regarding the prophecies that we are told, once again, what was the author's goal? If, through these 40 different people, over 1,500 years of human history, in three different languages, and noting the same consistent points about what, not human achievement, endeavor, or technology, not even necessarily human error and the intricacies therein it's talking about mankind's separation and restoration to god if the internet had something to do with that it would have been mentioned unfortunately it has done more to separate man from god than join him we're trying to be the exception but note even the passages where they would say like daniel 12 people will go to and fro no. knowledge will increase is a prophecy predicting uh, the advent of travel technology and so forth kind of a stretch i think it's just more vague in referencing the prophecies i've told you will become clearer in time but the point being made is this light dragon when it's, it's funny to just say that seriously uh, when we're talking about the purpose of the bible and i've had people come up to me and say well if your bible is so full of truth then why doesn't it tell you how to bake a cake because it's not the point god has bitter things in mind than to tell you where to put eggs flour sugar milk and in what order and at what temperature the one thing that God needed to tell us is just like with our king's kid question how to have a relationship with him that's his goal even with the Holy Spirit if you set up this bizarre standard the Bible doesn't even set for itself and condemn it by it that's called a logical fallacy but if on the other hand we'd say okay what is the Bible's goal self explained and it says it's to equip you for a relationship with God and it says over and over and over again man is sinful God is Savior fill in the blank yeah that's the point. So let us know if that's
1: clear. Also, very interesting. So there are some follow-ups where where he says, like, well, okay, what about, you know, how Christians should be considered on the road or how Christians should be used social media properly? In other words, wouldn't there be a utility to God telling us how to utilize these future inventions in a way that honors him? Now, uh, very interesting question, very interesting follow-ups, and I'm going to take you at face value that you're being sincere when you ask those questions. But when God is communicating his law to us and his work to us, he has a very intent uh, and very intense uh, purpose in what he's doing, and that is not to make us automatons, not to make us ro- robots, because if that's what God wanted us to do, he would have give, taken away all free will. So when God presents his law, it's actually, there's a lot of freedom within it. And this is important, because in most more restrictive and constraining religions, what we would Traditionally called cults, they don't do that, right? They don't leave things to the imagination. They are very specific about everything. And even how you should go to the bathroom, how you should wipe yourself afterwards, how you should use every particular utensil in their house. They are very extensive in the way they talk about these things. The problem with that type of uh, teaching, that moral or ethical teaching, is if you train someone in that way, then they're actually not a moral person. They're basically just a robot. They're basically just regurgitating and sticking to whatever you're telling them to do. You're not actually becoming a better person. This is also why uh, Aristotle, a pretty famous Greek philosopher, he refused to give specifics of morality in particular areas. So people would ask him constantly, how should I behave in this area? How should I behave in that area? Which was the whole point. He loved
0: answering questions and asking them.
1: That's right. Aristotle refused to do it because he says we need to move into what he called eudaimonia. We need to be our best version of ourselves. And the way that you become the best version of yourself is not by having someone instruct you on exactly what to do, but it's having you become the right type of ethical person that you could behave properly no matter which situation or circumstance you're uh, presented with. So God's intent uh, with his word, especially the moral dynamics of his word is not to make us automatons it's not to take away our free will and just restrict us and constrain us in what we're supposed to do in every particular situation with every particular device if he did that we wouldn't actually be morally uh, equipped people or ethically equipped people we would just be people who are instructed in every way good example of this would be with your kids when you're young right with the age my daughter is right now i have to do that I have to be very very specific about every little thing because she's not an ethical person yet. If I'm still doing that when she's 25, then you would be very weird about me, right? If I if I was calling up my daughter at the age of 25 and say, "Honey, you know, I want you to be able to use your KitchenAid very well. I need I need you to make sure that you're utilizing your television exactly correct. You know, I need to make sure that you're Roku that you're not going to these types of programs and you're not doing People would look at me like, "What kind of a parent are you?" because they would assume that aren't you a sufficient enough parent that you've trained them ethically where they would be able to make the right decision without having to ask you specificity in every particular scenario. The same thing is true with the Christian. We're becoming more and more like God to such an extent where we're able to make right decisions without having to be given the specifics. So very important. Uh, I like the question. I hope that helps. So then as a follow
0: up, if we were to be asked, how do you drive as a Christian? How do you use social media? If inventions are made in the future and the ethics surrounding that. when the Bible makes statements, it doesn't use the word teleporter or Mars travel or fill in the blank.
1: Or even utensils that existed during the time of the authors. Right? You just don't get that. Yeah.
0: But on the other hand, we are told, oh, no one, nothing except to love one another. It's obviously wise never to be the first person to use new technology because there's bugs that have to be worked out. Yeah. Hopefully video games have taught us that. Right. But also um, when it comes to hypotheticals like this, understand the principle. Are motivation and heart based, not on execution based. If how I should drive would be honor those in authority over you. Yeah. If I have the opportunity, live it peaceably with all men right. as much as depends on right. me. Those would be examples. But we don't want to be automatons that say unless the Bible tells me that I should go in neutral down the hill <laughs> or main and drive so I can respond properly and break without affecting my
1: gears, then I don't know how to function. Now God gives you more credit than Does that. It, and again, the Bible could do it. it. Doesn't tell us how to use a hammer in the Bible. Hammers existed at that time. It doesn't tell us how to drive your chariot (laughs) chariots existed at that time so so weird
0: ways they use their chariots and hammers (laughs) all that being said yeah thank you for the questions um here's uh one i think we can finish on but we'll see oh boy um yeah let's finish with this ben wants to know uh should I always be looking at and realizing how sinful I am and how much I need a savior? Is, is that a proper biblical attitude? We've got about three minutes.
1: Uh, yeah, so the idea of understanding your ethical dilemma before God, how much of a sinner you are, that's not actually the goal. So in other words, I'm not supposed to be continuously looking at myself like navel-gazing is the word that a lot of people use. That actually makes you kind of arrogant, where you're always just thinking about what am I doing wrong so I can kind of beat up on myself and be thankful for God as my Savior. That's not actually the goal. That could be a product of a greater goal. So what we are commanded to do is to pursue truth and righteousness, right? This is throughout, again, the New Testament and the Old Testament words, I should be challenging myself to become a better person. Now, I'm not a great person. So in order to challenge myself to become a better person, I'm going to have to come up close and personal with my sinful behavior. Now, what that does is it makes me understand more and more the grace that God has to give to me, not just way back in the day before I knew him, but every day. And this will make me more thankful to him. Now, this is very important. If you don't have that underpinning of understanding God's grace and immense love for you, if you try to systematically go throughout your character and try to figure out what's wrong with it and how you can be better, especially when you go up against the standard of perfection, namely Christ, you are going to want to probably slit your own wrist. So in fact, uh, Mark Twain famously was quoted of saying that he used to dream of the Bible sitting on his chest, sinking into his cavity. He had kind of a difficult relationship with Christianity, as you could tell if you've read any of his books. Yeah. But in other words, When Mark Twain confronted the ethical requirements of Scripture, it just completely crushed him. Why? Because he knew the ethical demands of Scripture, but he didn't understand the grace of Scripture. And so if you have all the ethical commands but none of the grace, Scripture will crush you. If you have all the grace but none of the ethical commands, you'll never understand your need for grace, and you will never become a better person. You need to have both. This is the Christian act of what we call repentance. We have godly sorrow, sorrow aimed at God because we have violated His perfect command, but sorrow that is then requited and forgiven through the sacrifice of jesus christ so that's the goal i need to become more righteous i'm pursuing god i'm pursuing holiness but a result of that which you know if you're honest with yourself will be kind of a roman 7 type thing <laughs> and so you you'll you'll be like man the things i want to do i'm not really doing the things i don't want to do this is what i'm practicing but man thank god that he loves me and forgives me yeah so don't
0: forget grace make sure that's front and center well, we got 20 seconds. Uh, here's a question from Dwayne. Is it okay to make theories about the Bible? Depends if you clarify them as such and you aren't blaspheming or contradicting clear statements through your theories. For example, I can have a theory about the book of Jasher. Why isn't it in our Bible? Well, maybe it wasn't divine scripture. We aren't told that is a theory. If on the other hand, I'd say, well, what if there's a fourth member of the Trinity that is blasphemous and antichrist? Know the difference. Thank you all for joining us. We appreciate your guys's good questions. And- and if we didn't get to them, I know there were a few. Feel free to send them along to us by email. Until then, we'll see you all again next time. God bless you. And until then, Mister Martin, over and out. The word of the Lord be with you. You've been listening to a reason for hope.